So tonight I'm going to talk about the Last Supper discourse of Jesus. And before I begin, I'll say um, it's fascinating to me that I see Christianity and Buddhism as such parallel traditions in so many ways. Um, but in this culture, when you know Buddhism is something a bit newer, and so when you hear about Buddhism, you it's often from a, a book from someone who's very well informed or for someone who has a long-standing meditation practice. We we tend to hear Buddhism almost exclusively from people who are making some kind of good faith effort to live out the Dharma. Whereas Christianity has been part of this culture for centuries, and it has been worked into convention and dysfunctions and everything else. Um, and it's a sad thing. Pain is loud. The loudest symbol, the loudest signals in the body and some of the loudest signals in society are signals of pain. Um, I think there are a large number of Christians in this country who are living, making a good faith effort to live according to the gospel teachings, but many of these people are just quiet, ordinary, decent people living ordinary lives, and they're not making any noise about it. I know some of these people, and they're wonderful. Um... A lot of the noisiest voices come from dysfunction. Um, and it's a, it's a sad thing in our, our media-driven culture that the loud dysfunctional voices often become, as it were, the spokespeople or the representatives for, for any particular movement. I also wonder if... Uh, I'm, I'm just noticing that attendance tonight is about half of what it has been over the past few weeks, and I don't know... If the, the Christian theme has scared people away somehow. I, or it might just be happenstance. I don't know. You know, and of course, the, you know, many people have been wounded by Christianity, or by the church, or you know, at least in the name of Christianity. And all this makes it much harder to appreciate the spiritual richness and depth of Christianity. It's much easier for us to appreciate the spiritual richness and depth of Buddhism because it doesn't come with all this this baggage, you know. And of course, the, the reason I'm talking about Christianity this week is, as you may know, it's something called Holy Week in Christianity. And so I'll just explain briefly for, if you're not familiar, or if you've repressed the facts. Um, yesterday was Palm Sunday, the, the day that commemorates Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Um, this Thursday is Holy Thursday, and then Friday is Good Friday. Um, Holy Thursday is the day that the Last Supper took place. Uh, Good Friday is the day that Jesus was crucified. He was you know, arrested, tortured, nailed to the cross, and died on the cross. Um, and it's called Good Friday because it, it's thought to be... Um, something that he that Jesus did very much for human sake for the sake of all of us um, Jesus body lay in the tomb on Saturday and then early Sunday morning Easter Sunday is when Christians believe he was raised from the dead and really that that cycle of the death and resurrection of Jesus corresponds in some profound archetypal ways to the enlightenment experience of the Buddha and they're, they're both 
sort of the foundational events in, in their respective religions. And I'll say also the, the four Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, these are kind of, these are the books that, as it were, tell the Jesus story. You know, they're not biographies in a, in a modern sense, but they, they tell the Jesus story. The first three all are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they, they follow similar patterns. They actually share a bunch of material between them. And then the fourth one, John, is completely different from the other three. Um, the, the, the first three just give this very short account of the Last Supper and, you know, the, the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the wine, the, which, which Christians understand as the beginning of the Eucharist. But John gives this long Last Supper discourse. Um, now, of course, the traditionalists would say that Jesus, sitting there right at the table, said all these words all at once. Uh, biblical scholars more would look at this as kind of a, the, the summation of Jesus' teachings given, given in this Last Supper discourse. So I'm going to read you a few selections from the Last Supper discourse and, and comment on them. The beginning of the Last Supper discourse is a striking story, a story which, which may, may sound familiar. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garment, and girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. When he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you must also do, that, that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so this, this striking image of, of Jesus in really a very servile way washing the disciples' feet. And with respect to this, I want to talk about two words, the word humility and the word humiliation. And probably those words sound a little bit different to you. Like, humility probably has kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling, you know. Humility is something conventionally valorized. You know, if someone says that we're humble, we take it as a compliment. You know, this sort of thing. Um, and spirituality demands something of us a little more than conventional humility. It, it demands a, a kind of self-sacrifice, which is captured more by the word humiliation. Now, humiliation is a difficult word. You know, we, we certainly think of you know, how cruel it is when someone humiliates somebody else. Um, but the truth is life itself 
has thousands of ways to humiliate us. And it does as we get older, you know. And I mean, that's just, that's just life, you know. Um, and I think part of the insight of both Christianity and Buddhism is by embracing those, the, just the inevitable humiliations that come with sometimes with raising children can do that sometimes aging you know um that these are all tools to let go of our ego attachments you know so there's just there's something you know it's always a good question what are the what are the healthy ways that i can embrace the humiliations that life is putting before me you know not so much the, the social humiliations, you know, but um, what are the letting goes that I can do? In another passage, he said, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So a number of things in that passage. Um, first of all, just this, he, and he says it several times during the Last Supper discourse, let not your hearts be troubled. But again and again, he's, he's, he's trying to reassure them. And this whole thing about in my father's house, there are many rooms and I've prepared a place for you. The way I would frame that is the sacred extends to us a deep possibility of belonging. You know, and what does it mean? What does it mean to belong to life? What does it mean to belong to the sacred? You know, what does it mean to be received that deeply? I was giving a, a talk a couple of weeks ago when I was on a retreat to the students at the Catholic school and I was talking about God's love and one of the things I said to them was you don't really understand God's love until it frightens you you know until you are frightened by the depth and the intimacy that is being offered So he says a few things, and then Thomas asks this question, how can we know the way? And it's fascinating, and this is something that occurs throughout the Gospel of John. People ask the, these confused questions, and Jesus' response is to answer with a pl- from a place of immediacy. You know, what is the way? I am the way. You know, this, 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 this almost this zen-like, you know, focus on, on what is available in the present moment. And I'm always particularly intrigued by this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
in a way we could read that as I am the Tao, the Dharma, and the Prana. And it's interesting because, of course, Lao Tzu wrote about the Tao, this mystical force that runs through everything. What would it mean if Jesus were the person who embodied the Tao that Lao Tzu was talking about, you know? Just another perspective on him. And I'll just say parenthetically, you know, no one comes to the Father but through me. You know, the traditionalists like to say, well, that proves it. You have to be Christian, otherwise you're going to hell. You know, like this kind of thing. Um, we come to the sacred through a way. You know, and Buddhism talks about this in a very different way. You know, Buddhism gives us an eightfold path. You know, we're not going to get to enlightenment by accident. You know, we're going to get to enlightenment by following a way, by doing, by doing intentional work, by, by following a discipline, you know. In another passage, Jesus said, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and let them not be afraid. And that one I find striking. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. I think of this in terms of the Buddhist idea of refuge. You know, and and Buddhism points out there's all kinds of false refuges, you know all the false things that we run to for security, for comfort, for, you know, you know, whether it's drugs or alcohol or relationships or entertainment or, you know, all the ways that we numb ourselves out and try to make ourselves feel better. Um, Of course, the traditional Buddhist formulation is I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And the idea that these are what provide true peace as opposed to the way that the world gives peace. You know? In another place, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch withers, and as the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." A lot to say about that. Um, one thing I'll say is that, in some sense, the the oldest and um, most far-reaching revolution that the human race has ever been through has been the agricultural revolution. It took place over tens of thousands of years, and was was really complete by the time that recorded history began. Um, 
but it was a profound change from earlier hunting and gathering religious, spiritual, mythological systems to much later, you know, plant-based mythological systems. Um, You know, and really, you know, all the ideas that we have, say the Buddhist idea of interconnection, you know, comes in part from the way that plants would be interconnected under the ground in a rhizome, you know. Um, and so we get this very, you know, in, in a much later religion, in Christianity, we're getting this this very uh, vegetative image, I am the vine and you are the branches. You know, similarly, you know, where was the Buddha enlightened? Under a tree, you know. And of course, I am the vine, you are the branches. It calls very much to mind the Buddhist idea of no self. Anatta. Which is one of the harder Buddhist ideas to understand. Um, Sometimes no self is understood more positively as interbeing or interconnection. You know. Buddhism would say, you know, any one object, say the couch I'm sitting on, you know, we our mind reifies it and thinks this is a separate thing. But if you think of the energy of all the people who have ever sat on it, if you think of the people who built it and the person who bought it and put it together and where did the raw materials come from and where did all those people get food and, you know, on and on, everything is connected to everything else. And I'm intrigued by this. um, He who abides in me and I am him. It is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We live in a very self-esteem-driven culture and a very, very ego-driven culture. And we so like claiming credit for the things that we do, you know. How much of our success is our own effort and how much is due to grace? I don't know. You know, many, many times we're we're successful in the world because of our inborn talents. To whom do we owe our talents? You know, this kind of thing. You know, so it's just a, just kind of a more a perspective to cultivate gratitude for what we're able to do in life, you know, and realize that there's an element of that that is a gift, you know, it's not just, you know, look at what I can do, you know, kind of thing. And all this stuff about the, the, the branches that bring forth fruit and the branches that don't bring forth fruit and wither, you know. What are the branches in our life that are bringing forth fruit? What are the branches in our life that are not? You know. 
And are we willing, as it were, to prune ourselves? To cut off, you know, cut away the parts of our life that really are not productive so that we can more fully flower. So I've read the quotes except for the, the, the love quotes. I wanted to read the love quotes together. Um, in one place, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, and that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And it's a new commandment in the sense that earlier Jesus had given the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's almost like he's upping the ante. You know, it's not good enough that you love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to love each other the way I love you. You know? What would it mean to see another human being the way the sacred sees them? You know? What would it mean to love another human being, to treat another human being as as someone who is loved by the sacred, you know? You know, especially if that person is, you know, screaming bloody murder at us or something like that. You know, as as you may know, of course the Hindu, you know, namaste, this sort of thing, is about acknowledging the divine in another person. And this new commandment, sometimes a more traditional name for for Holy Thursday is Maundy Thursday from Mandatum commandment because Jesus gave this new commandment. In another place, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells within you and will be in you. And this is his his prediction of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which which took place after on, on Pentecost. Um, you might say that God the Father represents the sacred as transcendence, and the Holy Spirit represents the sacred as imminence. Hinduism also talked about the the sacred transcendent and the sacred immanent, Brahman and Atman. And really the the central truth of the Upanishads is that Atman is Brahman, that the you know, the two ends of infinity, you know, loop together. Can we be quiet enough? to hear what is sacred in us? Can we live in a way so that we live from the nobility of knowing that we carry the sacred? Later on, Jesus said, 
This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that you have heard all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is my command to love one another. So here he's really upping the ante. You know, what does it mean to love? The greatest love is to lay down your life for people. And I'll, I'll certainly presence that, that Dr. King would have known this, this verse very well, and it probably meant a great deal to him. Um, today, of course, is the anniversary of the, of the famous Promised Land speech that he gave in Memphis uh, the night before he was assassinated. And this line, you did not choose me, I chose you. We live in this society where we're given so much choice. In fact, we're given even a bewildering amount of choice in some cases. Like, do we really need 80 different kinds of toothpaste? You know, this sort of thing. Um, Do we choose to do spiritual practice? Or are we drawn to it, you know? Do we choose it, or does it choose us? Does my meditation practice belong to me, or do I belong to my meditation practice, you know? And it's interesting just to think about the action of grace. We don't really choose grace. Grace touches us. Sometimes grace surprises us. You know, certainly I've had many, many experiences in my life when I've been surprised by something good that I never could have planned, you know, surprised by something that actually turned out to be much more beneficial to me than whatever I had in mind at the moment, you know. So, you know, and again, what does this how do we frame it to ourselves? Am, am, I, am I in charge of my spiritual life? Or am I allowing, is my, my spiritual life driven by something larger that I don't understand? So I'll share the quote sheets at this point. On, on page one is, are all the biblical passages that I read. And then their quotes on the other side. I'll also share the zoomies. Don't want them to be deprived. So on the other side. Frederick William Robertson, about whom I don't know a whole lot, said, the one who will be found in trial capable of great acts of love is ever the one who is always doing considerate small ones. 
Sri Nisgardata said, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Shunigo Suzuki said, Our practice should be based on the idea of selflessness. Selflessness is very difficult to understand. If you try to be selfless, that's already a selfish idea. Selflessness will be there when you do not try anything. Ramdas said, I would like my life to be a statement of love and compassion, and where it isn't, that's where my work lies. I remember about 20 years ago, I, I heard a, a talk by, by Ramdas, who was, he was up in Marin, and he's talking about on his, his altar, he had, you know, Buddha and Jesus and Krishna, but then he also, pre- George W. Bush was president at the time, and he had a picture of him on the altar, and he said every morning, you know, it would, he'd go to the altar and it would be like, hello Buddha, hello Jesus. Hello, Krishna. Hello, George. You know, and he said, that's where my work is. You know, because I can't honor him the way I honor the others. Henry Nouwen said, did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? These are the real questions. I must trust that the little bit of love I sow now will bear any fruits here in this world and the life to come. That's just a wonderful set of questions to read every day. Mary Oliver said, To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, let it go. Yeah, just that. That's all you need to know. The Dalai Lama said, peace starts with each one of us. When we have inner peace, we can be at peace with those around us. Nature Rayomi Remen said, the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and in love. Jack Cornfield said, The essence of Buddhism is no self, no problem. Eckhart Tolle said, Surrender to the grief, despair, fear, loneliness, or whatever form the suffering takes. Witness it without labeling it mentally. Embrace it. Then see how the miracle of surrender transmutes deep suffering into deep peace. David White said quite simply, you you will be humiliated into the next season of your life. Sakyong Mimpom said, Discovering the selfless nature doesn't have to be a monume- monumental eureka quality. It is more like being continually perplexed. The way we feel when we're looking for the car keys we're so sure are in our pocket. The experience of being somewhat dumbfounded is the beginning of wisdom. We look at our mind and see that it is a fluid situation, and we look at the world and see it as a fluid situation. Our expectation of permanence is confounded. And finally, Race Mimenikin said, Each of us can build our own capacity for genuine belonging. Mm 